Welcome to Open to Debate. I'm John Donvan. This week, I welcome Xenia Wicket to step in as moderator for a conversation with General David Petraeus and Andrew Roberts, the award-winning British historian. They'll be talking about their new book, Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. It's a fascinating study of modern conflict. And as we wrestle with recent outbreaks of war in Gaza and Ukraine, we thought it was an important conversation to have. Xenia is a geopolitical strategist and, among other things, has served in the White House and State Department. She now runs Wicked Advisory, a business she founded which offers expert advice on international affairs and strategy to various organizations or executives. And so, Xenia Wicked, over to you. For regular listeners, this is not the standard open-to-debate format. But every now and then, a topic or an opportunity comes our way in which we can gain sufficient breadth and depth of understanding by taking a different approach. And that's what we're doing today. Today, we're talking to two experts at the top of their fields, a military leader, General David Petraeus, and an academic, Lord Andrew Roberts, who have brought together their different experiences and perspectives on the topic of conflict in a recent book, Conflict, the Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. Why is this an important issue for us to discuss on Open to Debate? In some respects, you can think of debate and conflict as two sides of the same coin. Debate is a form of conflict played out through words and arguments. And conflict, in the military sense, is what happens when debate fails. These two issues, debate and conflict, are thus intimately entwined with one another and worthy of our discussion. We also hope that the historical framework that this book provides can give us some insight into the current state of global affairs, whether we're looking at events in Russia and Ukraine, which the book covers, Israel and Gaza, or the tensions between the US and China. So with that introduction, let me turn to our two uh, interlocutors. And whichever you wants to start, what made you write the book? Maybe I should start um, because it was originally my idea. I uh, um, got on to David just after the Russians invaded Ukraine and uh, and said, wouldn't it be a good idea if we were to uh, write a book together that put the Ukraine war into its proper historical context and was a military history book, uh, not a political book or a geopolitical book, but uh, specifically a military history book. And he leapt at the idea and... Um, we then uh, got on to some publishers, HarperCollins, and uh, needless to say, they asked us how we were going to divvy up the chapters. And I said, well, David's going to write about all the countries he's invaded, and uh, I'm going to uh, uh, fill in um, some of the other chapters. He also did the Vietnam uh, chapter, which needless to say is a tremendously important uh, chapter in this book. And then we passed the chapters backwards and forwards to one another in literally thousands of emails until we were both happy with the results. Fantastic. And and General Petraeus, you leapt at the opportunity. What made this book so important now to you? Well, I was hoping to have an opportunity for some time to write about Iraq and Afghanistan, two wars that I was privileged to command, and to revisit Vietnam, which was the subject of my PhD dissertation at Princeton. But to do all of that without doing it in a memoir or a tell-all or something like that. I really wanted to approach it as a military history. And so this provided a vehicle for that, to do so with a someone who's at the very top of his field as a historian and a biographer. Uh, and that's why I left it the opportunity. Great. Thank you. And, and perhaps we'll come back to it over the course of this conversation, some of the lessons of history for the conflicts that we're living through today or we might live through tomorrow that make it 
particularly prescient to have the book now. But I actually want to take a step back and go back to some of the basics that I remember from my education from my school days. And this idea, dating back to 1200, um, developed by Thomas Aquinas, the idea of proportionality and morality. And perhaps um, whichever of you wants to take this, Say a word about the importance of proportionality in war, if you will. It's something that comes up repeatedly in the book. And I'm wondering, is it still relevant in today's world, given what we're seeing on the streets? It's it's very relevant, and it was very relevant in the wars in which I was privileged to command. Um, proportionality and military necessity are constantly tugging one way or the other. Uh, one of the advances for humanity in the wake of World War II and the horrible events that it saw uh, was, of course, the development of the Geneva Convention, the laws of land warfare, which Western armies, militaries uh, have embraced, albeit with some mistakes and shortcomings along the way. So, yes, it's relevant, but is it being applied in today's conflicts? I mean, you know, you look at what's happening in the Middle East, you look at what's happening in Russia, Ukraine. Are we seeing proportionality? Well, we're certainly not in the Ukraine where... Um where the Russian invasion is uh, is wildly out of all proportion. The Russians have ripped up the rule book completely. Uh, they ignore the G- Geneva Convention, and uh, and so uh, no, there's there's nothing uh, proportional there. Um, with regard to um, to Gaza and uh, and what happened on the 7th of October, um, I think that you can't have an exact number um, of, uh, of, of dead and wounded as a proportion of the number that uh, were originally attacked, any more than we did, say, in the Second World War, where we killed uh, 10 times the number of people from aerial bombardment as the Germans uh, killed in London in the in the Blitz. It doesn't really work like that. Proportionality is a uh, is not a numerical thing. It's um, it's much more a sort of uh, a moral um, and uh, almost uh, in terms of Aquinas, a, a more a sort of spiritual thing. Really, I think it's also maybe worth pointing out, Xenia, that um, of course. All wars since 1945 have taken place under the nuclear umbrella in some form or another. And those nations that do possess the nuclear bomb and haven't used them um, have uh, connected to this concept of proportionality in that they don't um, just rip up proportionality and use the nuclear bomb. There was one moment where we thought that that might possibly happen in uh, Korea. And of course, we came very close, uh, the whole world came very close to it in the um, Cuban Missile Crisis. But other than that, uh, for all the saber rattling that we've had most recently, of course, from President Putin, you know, these bombs have not been used. And that is because proportionality has been adhered to by the great powers. You're picking up so many themes that I want to come back to, but I want to... The, the WMD theme, I very much want to come back to. The hearts and minds will definitely come back to. But I want to stick on this point of morality just for another second. You know, if you were advising, for example, the Israelis today, what would you be saying about um, how they should operate in the region, given what you know from your from your experience, and maybe I, I, I'll look to you, General Petraeus, to approach that question. Sure. Let, let me actually start where we perhaps might have started, which is to discuss what we lay out in the introduction 
which provides an intellectual construct for the conduct of strategic leadership. That's leadership at the very top, the very senior civilian leader and the very senior battlefield commander, the strategic leader in uniform. They have to perform four tasks in, in order to succeed in a conflict. You have to get the big ideas right. You have to understand the context of the particular uh, war, the particular campaign. You then have to communicate them effectively throughout the breadth and depth of the organization and to all those who have a stake in the outcome of the conflict. You have to oversee the implementation of the big ideas. It's what we normally think of as leadership. It's example, inspiration. Uh, it's the the hiring of great people and keeping them, developing them. It's allowing those not measuring up to move on to something else. And then there's a fourth task, which is formally to sit down, to refine the big ideas, to do it again and again and again. This construct is crucially important. Uh, we went all the way through these different chapters of the different conflicts that we explore. It was very, very clear in those cases where the side, the Western side typically didn't prevail. It was because they failed to perform uh, the task of a strategic leader, in particular, to get the big ideas right. We see that in Vietnam. It took all the way until 1968 until the U.S. finally got the big ideas right. The French, having had a disastrous big idea about building a big base at Dien Bien Phu to bring the communist uh, Vietnamese forces uh, to battle, they sure did, and they defeated the French and so forth. So in this case now, I have said publicly that I think that there need to be additional big ideas. There are two big ideas right now uh, that have been articulated by Israeli leaders, by the prime minister, that the that Hamas must be destroyed and also its junior terrorist partner, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and that the political wing of Hamas, that which essentially governs uh, the Gaza territory, has to be dismantled. Now, those are two critically important big ideas. The military can translate those into a military campaign. But I think there need to be at least two additional uh, big ideas. One is who is going to administer Gaza after the political wing has been dismantled. And I'm starting to think that there is no alternative, but that the Israelis will have to do so at least on an interim basis. Ideally, it would be a Palestinian authority that is competent, capable, and trustworthy would come over from the West Bank and and take over. That doesn't appear to be uh, in the realm of the possible or the doable. I'm not sure there's a competent, capable, trustworthy uh, entity there now, frankly, uh, or an Arab force, but there doesn't appear to be any enthusiasm for that either. So again, I think that it is going to be inevitable that the Israelis end up uh, having to, at least on an interim basis, uh, oversee the administration, and by the way, perform another critical task, which is to ensure that Hamas cannot be reconstituted. We've learned the hard way that extremist groups uh, that have to be destroyed, such as Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which became the Islamic State, that if you take your eye off them, as the, as the Iraqi security forces did three and a half years after we destroyed Al-Qaeda during the surge, uh, they are able to reconstitute themselves. So that is not a trivial task in addition to the task of administration. And then the, another very important task, what is the vision for the Palestinian people uh, in Gaza after Hamas is destroyed along with its junior partner, Islamic Jihad? And by the way, while they're at it, probably should discuss uh, the vision of the Palestinian people in the West Bank as well. Now, if that is done, I think there will be enormous attention uh, to how to take care of the Palestinian people that would be 
that which we tried to carry out uh, when we were separating the people from the extremists in places like Ramadi, Fallujah, Bakuba, uh, where you lay out a vision for them and you say that life will be much better and you start to demonstrate that right away. What I hear from you is absolutely the importance of getting the strategic vision right. That's a, that's a great place to start. So we're going to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back with General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts. We're back with Open to Debate. I'm your host, Zania Wickett, and I'm talking to General Petres and Andrew Roberts. So I want to now take a little bit of a step back. Uh, we've been talking a lot about morality and just war, but I actually want to talk about avoiding war. And this is something you brought up earlier, Andrew. You started to talk us, to us a little bit about WMD and, and the new use of nuclear weapons um, or their absence in the last 70 or so years. Um, in the final chapter of your book on conflict, you conclude that everything, that as everything can be seen on today's battlefield, then the most important thing for military leaders to do is to ensure deterrence. In the second half of the last century, um, we relied on mutually assured destruction, MAD, as a way to um, deter. But in a world in which we see little green men and we see cyber attacks, where attribution is very difficult to to prove, although it's improving, how indeed do we deter? And maybe, Andrew, I'll come to you for this first. Yes, you're right. This last chapter of the book uh, about the future of war, where we talk about cyber and space and drones, uh, AI, robotics, uh, and so on, misinformation and disinformation, these these big areas that we think are going to uh, really dominate uh, future warfare. And they're all a council of despair in a way, because of course, that means that the war has broken out. What uh, everybody should be much more excited about and uh, and concentrated on is exactly what you say, deterring war. And um, and deterrence is obviously has two major aspects to it, the actual uh, physical capacity to deter, and also the message that that physical uh, capacity sends to a um, antagonist uh, or a would-be antagonist and um, the message that they take away from it. So the key thing is, of course, um, in uh, in the area that you're an expert in, um, Southeast Asia, to prevent the Chinese from ever thinking that it would be a good um, thing to invade Taiwan. It's a uh, very expensive process. Needless to say, you have to be at the cutting edge of all the new technologies, those ones that I mentioned and, and many others. Um, and yet, actually, money spent on deterrence is rarely wasted, because if it does deter the war, that war is always going to be a multiple of times more expensive than the uh, than the amount spent on deterrence. What you have to ensure is that the potential adversary has no doubts about your capabilities on the one hand and your willingness to use them on the other. And indeed, you see this playing out in various places around the world, not the least of which is the Indo-Pacific, where there are many initiatives uh, to strengthen deterrence, to ensure that it is as solid as is absolutely possible, and also an awareness of leaders in Washington uh, that, again, there should be no doubt about our willingness to employ our capabilities, though obviously we don't want to do that. What we want to have is as mutually beneficial 
uh, a relationship in this case with the number two economy in the world and our number three trading partner, uh, noting that each of us is highly dependent on the other. It's a huge difference uh, from deterrence during the Cold War, <clears throat> where the U.S. and even Western Europe had very little in the way of the kind of economic exchange uh, with the Soviet Union that we now see uh, between the Western world and China. And so, again, the objective is to make sure there's no question about capabilities and will so that we can indeed, uh, over time, hopefully, uh, achieve as mutually beneficial a relationship as is absolutely possible without conflict. As I listen to you, I'm thinking about the politics of it, of course, and the the it's very hard to get support, financial and otherwise, um, to stop the dog barking, which is essentially what you're talking about. I actually think there's competition in Washington to increase uh, defense spending and increase other elements that would constitute what might be described as a comprehensive, integrated whole of governments approach to China. In other words, all of our allies and partners together uh, to ensure that conflict is deterred, is prevented. And also, I think it's uh, worth pointing out that although a huge amount of trade between China and, and the West is, of course, um, a, a, a good thing in uh, deterring conflict, because on both, neither side wants to lose that. Uh, in the end, you can get um, ideology and, uh, and sheer um, a sort of Thucydidean trap building up. Um, the classic example, of course, being before the First World War, where, where Britain and Germany were each other's largest trading partners. And, um, you know, by all accounts, there really should never have been a war there for that reason. And yet it didn't stop it. And yet it didn't stop it. Exactly. So I want to actually um, pick up, if I may, uh, something you said earlier, that the future of war is blurred lines. And I'm going to quote from your book, disconnected from traditional battlefields, actions comprise a form of warfare where computers, currencies and public opinion become primary battlegrounds. This has been termed the weaponization of everything. And you, you go on a little actually earlier in the book, you quote a Russian, the current Russian chief of staff, General Gerasimov, who stated in the 21st century, we have seen a tendency towards blurring the lines between the state of war and peace. So how do you deter, how do you avoid conflict if we can't actually draw a line anymore? It's considerably more difficult, um, of course. And uh, the Gerasimov doctrine, it, it goes so far. Uh, the classic example, of course, being in 2014, when uh, the Little Green Men, who you mentioned about, um, actually uh, took over Crimea and uh, and parts of the Donbass, and they didn't do it with um, with shoulder badges saying who they were, where they were from. Although it was pretty obvious, of course, who was uh, behind them. And um, and yes, this can be the uh, way in which wars sort of slip into starting. Of course, we knew that it was Putin who was giving the little green men the um, orders. General Petraeus, I would like to come to you um, and move into a topic that we've touched upon earlier, but we really didn't didn't dig into, but is a, is, a, is a theme that comes up regularly in the book. And that's around kind of communications and propaganda. You write quite early in the book that, and again, I'm going to quote if I could, however much it might be comforting to hear one's opinions parroted back, a general staff requires some professional naysayers if it is to be effective. 
Can you say a little bit more about the the role of discussion or debate within a military leadership? Because I will say from a civilian perspective, we think of the military as a very hierarchical organization. So how do you imbue the military with these naysayers, if you will? You foster a culture of learning. And that's what we sought to do uh, in many different ways. For example, during the surge in Iraq, which I was privileged to command, And so we built uh, a culture of learning into our various activities. First, you actually describe this as one of the big ideas that you want to achieve in the organization writ large. Then in the overseeing the implementation of the big ideas, every time that I had meetings, for example, with the uh, two-star commanders and above, each of those commanders had to provide um, lessons that he had learned or initiatives that would be of interest to the others. Uh, And then on my battle rhythm and my schedule, there were various events that uh, would constructively confront me uh, intellectually uh, with individuals who would would be willing to challenge some of the big ideas. And then in that fourth task, determining how you need to refine the big ideas, you have events that actually bring together individuals. full colonels that were the heads of the different lessons learned teams of the Army, Navy, uh, Marine Corps, Asymmetric Warfare Group, etc. And it's a structured process. It's not just a brainstorming session. People come in and they have uh, ideas that they want to share. I also brought individuals with me for the surge who I knew would challenge me. I brought in General H.R. McMaster, still a colonel at that time, who was at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. And I used him uh, to lead a campaign plan review, not once, but that given how important that first one was, we brought him back two more times and would partner him with a, a senior diplomat, an ambassador, and a team. So again, you have to really go about this first, you have to have the idea of it, and then you have to actually implement it. And uh, we worked very hard to do that. So I just want to double click on that, if I could, you know, distinguish between challenge and debate. You know, and then the other half of that coin, of course, is listening. And what you describe in in some of your anecdotes is people who weren't listening. So how do you actually create a context, create a not just a learning environment, but an environment that listens as well? I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. Again, the strategic leader, the battlefield commander, has to listen, has to surround himself with people who aren't intimidated uh, by him, who will tell him, you know, that the emperor has no clothes or socks don't match or something, again, are willing to challenge. But of course, at a certain point in time, uh, the strategic leader does have to make decisions and other folks have to salute smartly. The, the organization in the military is hierarchical, although it's more matrix than I think people realize as well. And we've done a lot to flatten the organization over the years, particularly when it comes to information coming up from the bottom. Needless to say, at a certain point, the leader has to make a decision. Those instructions have to be issued down through the levels of command. uh, And each leader along the way uh, has to echo, re-echo them. But the leader at the top really begins all of this, sets the tone, and then sets about actually implementing those ideas and making sure that that culture is a reality, uh, not just words on paper. It's a self-confidence thing to a great degree. Uh, the, the leader has to have the self-confidence, intellectual self-confidence, to be able to take on all comers. Uh, Winston Churchill was a great one for appointing um, no men as opposed to yes men, people who would actually uh, you know, oppose him. 
classic example being Field Marshal Lord Allenbrook, who um, would sit there breaking pencils in half in front of him saying, no, Prime Minister, you're wrong about this, that, that and the other. And the Prime Minister would um, would push back. And as a result of this thesis and antithesis, you got the synthesis of the grand strategy. And uh, as I say, it um, it requires, of course, in a, a good-natured way, um, a, uh, a proper you know, sometimes harsh exchange of ideas. You know, I was very fortunate to have uh, gone to civilian graduate school. I had two years at Princeton and it was a really out of my intellectual comfort zone experience. This is where I realized that there are seriously bright people in the world who don't see it remotely the way I do. Uh, and that's a very salutary experience. And when people ask me, you know, what, what were the formative experiences uh, in your life, thinking, I guess, that I would talk about previous campaigns I've been engaged in, and they were important, uh, or formal schooling, or this or that, um, I would always add in the civilian graduate school experience, because in many respects, it was the most formative uh, of those developmental experiences. Uh, and it was one of those that helped contribute to an awareness that none of us is smarter than all of us together, and that you need as big a tent as is possible, and as many people in it, uh, as inclusive as is possible, because the big ideas, by the way, don't hit you on the head like Newton's apple fully formed. If you sit under the right tree, you get hit on the head by a seed of a big idea, a kernel, and you have to shape it uh, into a big idea by lots of interactive discussion, debate. And again, some of that debate can be you know, fairly heated, emotional, and so forth. Although at the end of the day, the strategic leader has to make the decisions about the very, very biggest of the big ideas. So I, I am so tempted to stay on this because, of course, debate is what open to debate is all about. But I'm going to let it go because I think we've got a, a lot that I want to cover. And I want to kind of move slightly sideways, if I may. You, you say towards the end of the book, there are currently five widely recognized dominions of warfare, land, sea, air, cyber, and space. And you then note that actually maybe we need to add a sixth, which is information. You know, if we look at information warfare, and I'm kind of getting a little bit, uh, General, to your hearts and minds now um, that we talked about earlier. In today's conflicts, if, if you take what's happening in Russia, if you in Ukraine, if you take what's happening in the Middle East, the war is being fought not just on the ground, but very much being fought in, in the airwaves, in the information warfare space. Disinformation is playing a massive role. So how do societies, how do individuals, how do the people listening to this learn to distinguish truth from falsehood? How do they ensure that they are not seduced by the clever argument? First of all, leaders play a role. You have to recognize that there is, again, a domain, if you will, an additional domain to land, sea, air, space, cyberspace. There's information. It's been around for quite some time, but it is different now. You look at Ukraine, the first war that's ever been fought in which just about everybody on the battlefield has a smartphone uh, and ability to take videos and photographs and then upload them because connectivity is, is available uh, and then that there are social media platforms and so forth onto which all of this can be uploaded. So the explosion of open source information. Uh, and then leaders contribute to this. They have to be good communicators. Uh, President Zelensky has been a brilliant communicator to date. Now, perhaps he should be. He was an actor. He was a comedian who played the president so well he got elected president. But he's actually been a brilliant strategic leader to this point. 
problem is, of course, the conflict is still ongoing. But his performance is getting the big ideas right, by the way. I don't want to ride. I want ammunition. I'm going to stay in Kiev. My family's going to stay. We're going to defend our country. Every male is going to stay. Communication skills, brilliant. Oversees it brilliantly. Beautiful example, inspiration at the front lines. Wears an OD uh, uniform instead of uh, a suit and all the rest of this. And then retweaking this, the fourth task, and, and doing it again and again and again. But an element of this, clearly, is the communication uh, component. We see it very much playing out in uh, Israel's war on Hamas. International public opinion is very important in this regard. Uh, Israel needs support uh, from outside. They have to be keenly aware of that, and they are. Um, but you have to have big ideas about this. The big idea during the surge in Iraq for dealing with the press and really this whole domain was that we were going to be first with the truth. Uh, we want to beat the bad guys to the headline. That's not a trivial issue in a war in which the bad guys have the CNN Baghdad Bureau dialed in, be dialed on their, their cell phone. Um, so, but you want to get the headline, but you want to do it with the truth. Uh, this is not propaganda. It was not disinformation. You lose your credibility if you engage in that. If you put lipstick on pigs, instead of just acknowledging that you had a really bad day in Baghdad and being honest and truthful about it, uh, if you if you carry out those kind of activities, again, you undermine your credibility. And then finally, of course, the consumer of information has a responsibility. We should obviously in our schools try to help individuals understand to be good consumers of information, given that there is lots of misinformation out there, to understand the perspective of the media platform, the media source, uh, the information source, to understand how to consume it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but doing all of that, obviously, without a particular, particular bias or perspective or per political uh, persuasion, uh, again, is challenging. But that lays out this particular component, which is ever more important because of the advent, again, of smartphones, internet connectivity, and social media. And also, sorry, can I just add another thing, Xenia? Also, of course, um, the technology of uh, propaganda has come on leaps and bounds. The deep fakes, uh, the bots, the way in which a lie can uh, can zoom around the world much, much faster than, than truth can. And that's actually um, been a... Um, Proven fact, MIT did a study on it, and a lie goes, uh, gets uh, seven times more uh, retweeting than something that's uh, true, which says something about human nature, but nothing particularly good. TikTok, uh, this war, uh, the Gaza war is being fought, you know, essentially on uh, TikTok, which um, where people will take part in demonstrations. It's happened here in London with people who, who couldn't possibly put Gaza on a map. Uh, the fine cars are on the map. So, so we are fighting because of the increase in this uh, and speed of change in technology, a, a, a new kind of warfare where the media, um, shows like this one, have a profound moral responsibility to, um, to, to get to the truth. I feel like we're back on morality again, but I'm going to resist because we have to take a break. When we come back, we're also going to invite some members of the audience to join us and ask their own questions. I'm your host, Zania Wicket. We will be right back. We're back with Open to Debate. I'm Zania Wicket. This week, a conversation with General Petraeus and Andrew Roberts 
And right now, we're inviting some of the members of our audience in to introduce a few new questions to the conversation. First up, James Fallows. James Fallows is a journalist and author of the book National Defence. Jim, please come in and join us with your question. Zenia, thank you so much. And of course, it's a tremendous honor to be able to ask a question of these two distinguished um, authors. And I have a question about the management of conflict in democratic societies. We know that in theory, warfare ultimately depends upon consent of the governed, but it's become a more and more imperfect process, it seems from my perspective. I know the UK situation is different from the US, but during my lifetime in the U.S., it seems as if accountability for military decisions has been sort of more and more systematically removed from what we think of as the normal democratic processes. We know that the last formal declaration of war in the U.S. was in World War II. Presidential authorizations have rolled on after that. Congress seems intentionally not to want to take responsibility for decisions about use of force. The public is less and less involved. How do the two of you see this phenomenon? Are we seeing just what has always been the case of managing war, or is there a difference of degree that's become a difference of kind in the way democratic societies make decisions about conflict? Great to see you, Jim, and thanks for a characteristically thoughtful question uh, that builds on a lot of the research and writing that you've done over the years. Um, I, I think it's what's interesting is that, of course, in the wake of Vietnam, uh, Congress sought to establish um, guardrails, guidelines, requirements uh, for the use of force uh, by American presidents uh, who previously really did exercise that um, somewhat unfettered by Congress, at least until the point that Congress would eventually, as it did with Vietnam, but after many, many years. Uh, begin to restrict the authorizations and the appropriations for it. Um, And the War Powers Act, as that did, uh, did indeed impose some restrictions. But then, uh, of course, in the wake of 9-11, you see a return of really quite uh, substantial authorization for presidents. And that authorization actually continues to this day. The authorization for the use of military force, AUMF, is still extant. Uh, and it has proved to be a f- reasonably elastic. And it, together with the self-defense uh, power granted to the, the president, the, the ability for our forces to defend themselves, <clears throat> has enabled really quite a substantial uh, amount of use of force over the years. And although Congress has, at various times, announced a desire to uh, either do away with the AOMF or to redefine it or what have you, Uh, It never has. And I think what you have, therefore, is a performative uh, expression by Congress that it wants to exercise more uh, in this particular area, influence, restriction, and so forth on a very empowered presidency. Uh, But at the end of the day, they shrink from that uh, and allow this to continue. Right now, I think the presidency still has very substantial power uh, when it comes to use of force, uh, certainly in the kinds of counterterrorism and to a degree counterinsurgency uh, operations that are going on around the world still, uh, and then obviously to uh, empowered by enormous defense budgets uh, to build up quite substantial forces to deter the most important potential uh, conflicts, uh, in particular the one we were discussing earlier in the Indo-Pacific region. 
With the uh, regard to the British um, aspect, it's a little bit different because, of course, our parliamentary system is very different to your presidential one. And um, it means that the House of Commons is very much in control. It was the House of Commons that really forced the government into war in both the First World War, the timing of the um, forcing the government into the, the Chamberlain government into the Second World War, of course, in occasions where it doesn't uh, like the, the wars um, or it won't uh, approve, uh, for example... In 2013, when President Obama um, was uh, was considering his red lines in Syria, the House of Commons opposed giving an ultimatum to Assad, and so governments can can rise and fall on the back of, uh, of votes in the House of Commons at any time, and uh, it therefore gives MPs tremendous uh, power, which is a good thing, of course, in our democracy, to uh, push the government one way or another in the uh, in the course of a war. Thank you, Jim, for a great question um, and a little bit of divisions between the US and the UK system, but many commonalities. Next up, we have Kevin Barron. He's the editorial director of Politico Live. Kevin, join us with your question. Thank you. And thank you, gentlemen. Good to see you both. General Petraeus, what you said about deterrence. If, if adversaries need to be assured that the US and allies have capabilities and have the will to use them, what happens when neither of those things might necessarily be true? There's a lot of uh, consternation that the U.S. does not have the capabilities to fight and defend itself in a large war, much less continue to equip a war like a Ukraine that might go on at, at the big war level. And politically, with the rise of MAGA, Brexit, other movements that are less inclined to be involved in foreign wars at all. Do leaders need to do more to convince their publics to and their industries to uh, to do something more for defense, to be more willing to fight? Or do leaders have to grapple with the realities that may prevent both of those things from ever happening? Well, there's a number of questions uh, in that, uh, Kevin, thanks. Um, One is that clearly uh, Ukraine has demonstrated that the military-industrial complex of the entire Western world, uh, particularly though uh, NATO, Europe, uh, and North America, needs to be increased given the expenditure of some munitions that we've never uh, seen uh, used at such a rate, so one five five millimeter howitzer ammunition and the rest of that. That's that's a lesson of this. Um, there is another. That, I mean, again, if a country is fighting its war of independence and explicitly does not want your soldiers on the ground uh, because of the complications that that might bring, again, and we see this with Israel as well. Yes, we have two entire aircraft carrier task forces and additional aircraft force protection air and ballistic missile defense uh, in the greater Middle East. But Israel is determined uh, to fight Hamas on its own. So, uh, again, always preferable uh, to advise, assist, enable, train and equip others um, rather than do it for them. And with the rise of unmanned systems in particular, especially when it comes to the conduct of counterinsurgency and counterterrorist operations, you can do that. Uh, in a much more efficient manner. But when it comes to the bigger issue, again, we come back to the potential adversary's assessment of your capabilities on the one hand and the willingness to employ them. I think it's very important in the case of the latter element to recognize, as we lay out in the book, that what takes place in one part of the world reverberates in others. So if you have a red line in Syria that doesn't turn out to be a red line, as a Southeast Asian prime minister told me the day that I was meeting with him and that actually took place. He said, you know, that affects 
dynamics out here. It reverberates it out here. Um, it may be interpreted uh, in various ways. When we withdrew from Afghanistan, uh, when we didn't have the strategic patience to keep even just 3,500 troops on the ground, having not suffered a battlefield loss in 18 months, uh, and the cost was very, uh, very doable for you know, in a, a defense budget of 800 to $850 billion to spend $25 billion to make sure that this country didn't fall back into the situation it was in when the 9-11 attacks were planned on its soil, that reverberated. And President Xi, in fact, of China, uh, observed that, see, you can't count on the Americans. They're not a dependable ally. Uh, and look at how the withdrawal went. They're also a great power in decline. Again, that affects deterrence. You have to be aware of that. I think that that withdrawal also was at least one of the factors that led President Putin to think that he could invade Ukraine without the very formidable uh, and impressive response led by the U.S. and other NATO countries uh, to help Ukraine in that case. If I could just add also um, that uh, I think it's a common misconception that Brexit was an isolationist thing. It wasn't. It was an anti-EU thing. In fact, Britain has been at the forefront of uh, being able to help Ukraine, partly because of Brexit, because we haven't been part of what the French and Germans were wanting to do, in both cases, rather um, rather slowing down the response. Instead, Britain's been in the forefront of it, and uh, and that's, as I say, partly due to Brexit, um, uh, and which therefore can't be mixed up with MAGA or or any isolationist uh, concept. The um, with regard to NATO, um, I think that we mustn't think that. Ukraine, although it is, of course, a very important hint and signpost to what future wars uh, might look like, uh, it's not a signpost to what a war between Russia and NATO would look like, because NATO has got uh, weaponry that it hasn't given to um, Ukraine, and which if it did use, um, it would be devastating. Thank you, Kevin, very much. Um, I want to stay on this theme, uh, Andrew and, and General Petraeus, for a moment, because you write in, in your book about, in reference to the Rwandan Civil War, about a moral conundrum. Um, you know, to what extent are nations and or the UN or NATO responsible because they are powerful, because they can do something? Um, even in a world in which their national interests aren't threatened. And it, what's what's your answer to that? Perhaps Andrew first. Um, well, I mean, how powerful is the United Nations? It's one of those questions, like Stalin asking how many divisions has the Pope. It's very difficult really to know. I mean, in a, if the United Nations were a powerful force, it would be running Gaza after the uh, defeat of Hamas. But nobody's mentioned the idea that it, uh, it would or, or could, and it certainly obviously doesn't want to any more than, um, any more than Israel does, frankly, but uh, any more than the Arab League does. Uh, we're in a situation where the UN were it more powerful might have been able to have stepped in earlier in Rwanda and maybe saved up to a quarter of a million lives, but um, but that wasn't there. It's a uh, it's it's one of the great tragedies. And and General Petraeus, I mean, the US is powerful. Uh, is there a moral obligation on the part of the US, whether it's in the Middle East or elsewhere? There is, but it obviously has to be balanced with your capabilities, uh, with the. Uh, prospect for actually being able to intervene in a timely manner and to make a difference uh, uh, and what the outcome will be. Uh, keep in mind that in the case of Rwanda, uh, the U.S. had just had a very difficult experience in Somalia 
Uh, and despite the expressions of concern about what was going on in Rwanda, there was enormous reluctance and, and caution because of that terrible experience uh, in Mogadishu. So uh, again, certainly uh, there's a responsibility. Ideally, it would be exercised collectively. Uh, the reality is that in many cases, the U.S. has to lead coalition efforts, certainly if it's to be Western countries. Uh, and even in those where it doesn't, it typically has to play some significant role uh, because of the preponderance of resources that the U.S. can bring to these efforts. By the way, we should keep in mind that even with European countries very much stepping up to the plate uh, in the case of Ukraine, um, the U.S. defense budget is still more than double that of all of our NATO allies put together. Uh, so again, it does uh, mean that the U.S. Uh, has a unique role in the world, uh, and that is extended to these cases uh, of humanitarian assistance, uh, just as it is to those involving more traditional security tasks. General Petraeus, um, we say we always fight the last war. And as you just quoted, you know, the events in Somalia affected American desire to act in Rwanda. Today, we're living through two horrific conflicts in Russia-Ukraine and in the Middle East, in, in Israel and, and Gaza. But we're very focused on a potential war with China. How do we make sure that we're not fighting today's wars and we're preparing for what tomorrow's might look like? Well, you have to be very conscious of where the future of war is headed. I think we are. Uh, we lay that out in an entire chapter uh, in the book, I think the military is keenly aware of that as well. Uh, we're out to transform our forces in very simplistic terms from a very small number of very large platforms that are incredibly capable, heavily manned, exorbitantly expensive, um, but also increasingly vulnerable uh, to a massive number of unmanned systems uh, that will increasingly be not just remotely piloted, but actually algorithmically piloted. So again, you have to be conscious of that. But the U.S. uniquely has to be prepared and in, engaged in all kinds of different warfare, some of which are throwbacks to the past. Uh, indeed, Ukraine, to a degree, uh, is representative of this. Uh, Max Boot, the brilliant uh, Washington Post uh, columnist, has described Ukraine as the war in which all quiet on the Western Front meets Blade Runner. Um, and so you have to be conscious of all of the different components uh, of conflict in a case like that. Um, and we have to as well. And again, the U.S. uniquely, together with our allies and partners, but we leading the way, have to keep innumerable plates spinning around the world. The plates meaning the challenges, the threats. We have to deal with all of these. Obviously, we have to do it as efficiently and effectively and, as, and, and so forth as we possibly can. To pick up on Kevin's question, which is, you've just described the U.S. as needing to be able to be capable of doing everything. And yet the American people and the American budget is limited. So how do you think about, and, and briefly, if you don't mind, but how do you think about prioritization in that context? This is always about establishing priorities. It's about allocating shortages. When I, you know, there's never been a commander in history, and I certainly was not one of them, who ever felt that he had enough troops, uh, enough now drones, enough bandwidth is another uh, key challenge, all of this. So again, those at the very top have to assess 
where they're going to prioritize. But the U.S., when you're talking about an $850 to $900 billion defense budget, there's an awful lot that can be done with that. And I think we are capable of doing that. I wish we had a little bit more time and I could dig in a little bit more, but time is always of the essence. Andrew, you quote Timothy Schneider in the book saying, those who took democracy for granted were sleepwalking towards tyranny. The Ukrainian renaissance is the wake-up call. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean and who's woken up? Well, I think uh, NATO has uh, woken up. That's the reason that uh, we've got Finland and Sweden in NATO now. Um, David uh, is fond of pointing out that Putin started this war in order to make Russia great again. All he's really done is make NATO great again. And uh, he's um, reminded the uh, world that democracies can be snuffed out um, militarily, uh, unless other Democrats and, and others try to prevent it. And that's what's happening in um, in Ukraine. It it is not over, of course. Um, the the latest um, counteroffensive has not uh, done everything it was hoped to do. And, um, and that's uh, pretty clear now. Um, this war is going to carry on, but, um, the importance, and we were speaking earlier, uh, with, um, with Kevin's question about American isolationism. You know, the, the key thing is that, uh, the whole world should be standing by Ukraine. And if a vitally important part of the free world, that being America, uh, doesn't, in the future, it's going to be catastrophic for um, for the um, Ukrainian democracy. Thank you, Lord Andrew Roberts. Thank you, General Petraeus. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you both. And once again, the book is Conflict, The Evolution of Warfare from 1945 to Ukraine. As a non-profit working to combat extreme polarisation through civil debate, Open to Debate is made possible by listeners like you the Rosencrantz Foundation, and supporters of Open to Debate. This show is generously funded by a grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Our CEO is Clear Connor. Leah Matow is our chief content officer. This episode was produced by Alexis Pankrazi and Marlette Sandoval. Editorial and research by Gabriella Mayer. Andrew Lipson and Max Fulton provided production support. The Open to Debate team also includes Gabrielle Yanicelli and Rachel Kemp. Damon Whittemore mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Alex Clement and I'm Zania Wicket. Thank you for listening. See you next time. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.